I could feel the excitement in the hallway this morning. Not quite Easter anticipation levels, but that annual stewardship sermon is a very close second. Necessary, our ushers are prepared to bring in some chairs to accommodate this oversized crowd the stewardship sermon has called in today. Stewardship, your favorite, my favorite, can't wait to talk about it. Here we go. Exodus 23, 19. Our stewardship theme for this year. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soul into the house of the Lord. Simply said, bring your best or give God your very best. Bringing one's best into the house of the Lord reminds me of a very appropriate story for mid-November as we head into turkey time. Paul Harvey once shared a, a true story about a lady who called in to the Butterball Turkey Hotline. She had a question, usual question, the Butterball Hotline had never had this question. I have a turkey that's been in my freezer for 23 years. You're laughing, you got something in your freezer been in there double decades. <laughs> you think you'd be hard to miss the turkey though, would you? 23 years. Is it safe to eat? Well, the guy did a little research and said, if the old bird has been at a constant temperature of zero or below for the entirety of those 23 years, then it is safe to eat. But, ma'am, he added, by now the bird has lost all of its taste, and I would not recommend eating it. Oh, that's what she thought, she, she said. We'll just give it to the church then. <laughs> Apparently, the donor of the tainted, tasteless turkey was not familiar with the guidelines for giving found in Exodus 23. Give God your very best, not the 23-year-old frostburn bird. I'm not a very good gardener. A bumper crop is seldom when I sow the seeds. Growing great veggies is just too complicated, isn't it? Too much water, then it's too little water. It's too cold for the seeds to germinate. It's too hot for the tomatoes to make fruit. And bugs beat me to the bounty of my crop every single year. Well, I tried to beat the odds, however, by planting a large variety of veggies. I, I figured the law of averages means I'm going to win something. Some crops like more moisture, some like less moisture. The pH is acid or alkaline. Different crops like it differently and the nutrient levels. Eventually, if I plant enough variety, I will favor one or two things. What, what might kill the carrots might promote the potatoes. That's my logic. So sowing several kinds of seeds or planting the potatoes, I'm almost certain to make something work. I can't be a total failure with the variety. This year, the okra came in an overabundance. I won with the okra. And if you're looking at a piece of okra and asking yourself, should you pick it today? The answer is yes. Tomorrow, it will have its own zip code. So pick the okra today. And the potatoes were plentiful too. 
Lisa reminded me that potatoes can be purchased for just pennies by the pound, but that's not the game, is it? We have labored in water, and I hold up mounds. The higher they grew, I hold the mounds up high. It was exciting. And at the end, I got to go on a treasure-digging potato hunt with my grandgirls looking for golden and red potatoes. A great deal, a great deal of potatoes, our very first attempt at spuds. And hey, the ones you get, I'm just going to tell you, the ones you get in the store, they're already dehydrated. These taste like you put milk in them when you start baking those things. Creamy potatoes. I've seen through my very few bumper crops through the years that God uses gardening to create, to generate generous spirits. Because inevitably in your garden, the crop all comes in at once doesn't it? And thus you, you have to share. In fact, there are some seasons in Amarillo when the conditions are just right. If you just leave your car unlocked in the church parking lot, some zucchini enthusiasts will put a bag of zucchini just in your car because you haven't locked it. They've grown so much zucchini. I mean, there's only so much you can do with zucchini, right? I mean, we eat zucchini spaghetti and zucchini bread and zucchini sandwiches. Eventually, your zeal for zucchini is absolutely zero. And then you're ready to share it with your neighbor. Please, please, your neighbor begs, take some of my zucchini. Do y'all need any zucchini over there? Gardening is God's way of teaching generosity. But there's a distinct difference, isn't there? Do we give our friends and our family our season's first sweet, perfectly picked watermelon, our first fruits, or our best effort? Or do we hand over a two sizes, too big, tough as toenails bag of zucchini to our friends? God does not want your Zeppelin-sized zucchini. God wants his worshipers to bring him the first and the best of all of their produce. God wants our best. Bring your best as a gift to the house of worship. And this gold level giving goes beyond just the fruit of the field. It also included the livestock and the lambs. The rancher was to bring his best just as surely as the farmer. Listen to me as I read the farmer's passage in Malachi 1.8. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? And why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle a fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept your offering. God expects our offerings, our sacrifices to be our best a return portion of his good and generous gifts to us, brought as a heartfelt act of worship. By giving God our best, 
By bringing our first fruits to the house of worship, we respond to the one who is the giver of all good gifts with both gratitude and devotion. But when our giving becomes mundane, we replace heartfelt devotion with the reluctant duty we fail to measure up as givers. We begin to calculate how little we can give and get by with God. We haven't done our best in worship, not even close. And God told them how to give in Exodus and Leviticus. Bring the animals to sacrifice that are without defect, God said. Those animals that have no blemish, he repeats. But God's people were showing up in Malachi's day with the sick lambs, the lame lambs, the blind lambs. They were culling their flock and taking the culls as a sacrifice to the house of worship. They were using lame beasts as substitutes for their authentic gifts to God. They were giving God the very beast that no one would buy in the market. In fact, Malachi said, would such second-rate gifts be good enough for your governor? If the answer is no, why would you show up with those second-rate gifts and try to give them to God, Malachi asked. Those unblemished lambs, of course, were simply a prophecy or or foreshadowing of the future Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth, the Lamb of God in 1 Peter 1.19, we are told that Jesus is the Lamb without blemish or defect. The lambs they offered were to reflect the real Lamb of God who was perfect. And the cheap and marred sacrifices of Malachi's time left much to be desired. They gave God their leftovers. No, thank you, God said. Would somebody just lock the house and y'all quit starting fires if that's what you're going to bring? It's disgusting me, says the Lord. Imagine if I called up Lisa and Chandler, our daughters at home today, and said, hey, I've got some good news. Don't bother cooking. I'm bringing home abundance of food tonight. They sit in anticipation about the delicacies that are soon to be delivered for dinner. What's he bringing home? Piping hot pizza, a really big burrito. And soon I arrive with a cold, greasy sack. Here it is. A smile, a hand over the less than desirable leftovers. You girls, go ahead. I'm stuffed. I had two of these burritos for breakfast, and I had that pizza at lunch. It was just too much. You can take your pick. One of you can have a half-eaten burrito, and the other one of you can have a cold push-away piece of pizza. What? Your big surprise for dinner was a bitten-off burrito and a pushed-aside piece of cold pizza? They would ask, how does God feel when we show up with less than our best, offering like ancient Israel, blemished gifts to God? Maybe those less and best, those blemished gifts are failure to give God our, our first check of the month. 
to give him our first fruits, or maybe it's a failure to give the people of God a priority on our calendar. Hey, we don't have any big plans for this weekend, and the cowboys don't kick off to three o'clock. We might as well go to church this weekend. You might as well go to church as if it were the last alternative for a really nice weathered Sunday. God sees our second great efforts as a sack of greasy leftovers. And he says, just shut the doors, lock it up, and don't bother me. Our last passage is the one, turn now to 2 Samuel 24. I'll tell you this story this way. In 2 Samuel 24, God is a very frightening God. God is angry. And God is unfettered, and, and God is dangerous in 2 Samuel 24. And David has ordered a census, a count of the people, primarily perhaps to establish military draft and broaden his tax base. The census is a clear departure from old, informal, modestly powered previous administration. In the old, innocent, tribal world of ancient Israel, a census was never needed. A draft is not forced because a militia, the local militia, will always rise up in times of trouble, David. And taxes were limited in those days of the tribe because the government was less expansive. You see, this census represents a breakdown of the primary face-to-face -face relationships of the people of God, leading to a formal organization of brokered power that Israel had not seen before. Look at verse 3. Joab, the general, objects. But Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord or king still see. But why does my king delight in this thing? I don't want to do it, Joab says. That's not the way we do business in ancient Israel, the commander objects. David, is all this head counting really necessary? Joab asks. In the past, we lived by faith and not by force, Joab says. And Joab sees the census for what it really is, a serious shift in the modes of power and manipulation, and therefore out of step with God's old ways, trusted ways for dealing with his chosen people. But David overcomes his commander and insists, you go count the heads, Joab. I can picture now those little villages scared. Here comes the feds invaded by highly organized government forces, swift runners, powerful horses, royal agents of expansion. Much like the one in Luke 2 that went out of decree from Caesar Augustus. You remember the census. This is no innocent head count here. Rather, this is a tactic of bureaucratic terrorism and turmoil, and David comes to discover the dreadiness of using force over faith with God's people. And suddenly, all of a sudden in the narrative, I don't know what changes his mind, but David sees the head counting for exactly what it is, a sin against God, a lack of faith, and promoting a fear amongst the people. Look at verse 10. Now David's heart is troubled. Trouble before him. 
after he'd numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have acted foolishly. David sees what he's done as a sin. And God gives him a pick-your-poison response. Look at verse 13. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or you flee for three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to the one who sent me. You repented, David, and I appreciate it, but there has to be a response to your sin. And what will it be? Do you want famine in the land? Do you want to be on the flee from your foe for three months, David, while they pursue you? Or do you want three days of plague and pestilence in the land? And David, David trusts God more than David trusts man. And David says, let's go with the plague and pestilence for three days from God. As part of Yahweh's anger, the angel of death comes to the land and thousands are dying as the plague and the pestilence moves to the land. Thousands are dying and David cries out, verse 14, Oh God, be merciful. As the angel of death moves through the land, he begins to get close to Jerusalem, God's own city, and God raises his hand and says, Stop, 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 far enough, far enough, relax your hand, O death angel. The angels stopped the plague and the pestilence right at the specific spot of the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Verse 18, Gad gives some advice to David. Gad's the prophet, the seer. Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. God, if you're going to keep this pest pestilence and this plague stops, then you need to build an altar and burn and sacrifice and worship right here where God has given his mercy to his people and God has been merciful to Jerusalem. Build an altar right here, David. You need Arana the Jebusite's land to do that. You need his very threshing floor where God drew the line with his hand and said to the death angel, stop. Now picture old David. He's walking towards the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. And Arana has a spirit of cooperation. However I can help is Arana, the Jebusite's attitude. David says, I need to buy this threshing floor. I need to get some oxen. I need to buy some wood. I need to do a sacrifice, and I need to do it now, and I need to do it right here. And Arana says in verse 22, hey, 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 you're the king, man. Whatever you need, you need the threshing floor, you can have it. You need some oxen, I've got oxen, you just burn my oxen. You're the king. This is, this is king and God stuff. Uh, far be it from me, you need wood, we'll use the yoke of oxen. We'll use, we'll use my tools, that'll be the wood. Let's get this thing done, David. In verse 24, David says, notice, however the king said to Rona, no. But I shall surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. 
So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. No, no, no. I can't take it as a gift, David says. I will not offer to God that which is not costly to me. I must buy it. I cannot get those words of David out of my mind this week. I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Will we be like those half-hearted worshipers in Malachi's day who were bringing the lame lambs and the greasy sacks of pizza and burritos? Our willingness to sacrifice in our pursuit of God reflects just how precious he is or is not to us. And it really doesn't matter the size of the gift, does it? It's the size of the sacrifice that matters. For the real gold medal giver in the New Testament is a widow who gives two pennies. But for her, it was the ultimate sacrifice. Not the size of the gift, but the size of the sacrifice. I will not give to God that which is not costly to me. When most people think of Oxford, you think about bright minds who are debating quantum physics or the best intellectuals who are debating the existence of God. But sometimes we discover that the brainiest among us need some common sense. That's exactly what happened at St. John's College in Oxford. St. John's is the Oxford College that has the largest endowment of all the endowments at Oxford. They are rarely richly endowed. Well, the students had a sit-in there. They wanted the college, they, the quadrangle of this 15th century constructed quadrangle. The students just sit in. They refuse to leave. They will not leave until the bursar of St. John, until he sells off $10 million worth the endowment, which is invested in Shell and BP. The students don't like the, the oil uh, stocks, and so they, they're just going to sit in until the bursar of Oxford College actually sells off $10 million of those kinds of stocks. And they want it done, and they want it done now. The Times of London reported that the bursar, Andrew Parker, made them a counteroffer. I'm not able to arrange the divestment at short notice, but I can turn off the central gas heating in your dormitory immediately with good effect. Please let me know if you support this proposal that will make a difference. The idea that the students themselves actually make a fossil fuel sacrifice did not go over very well. One protest organizer complained that Mr. Parker was being flippant, that it was January and it might even be dangerous to turn off their heat. Another suggested that Mr. Parker was just being provocative in response to their sit-in. And again, the bursar responded with wisdom. You're right that I'm being provocative, but I'm provoking some clear thinking, I hope. It is all too easy to request that others do things that carry no personal cost to yourself. And the real question is whether you and the others are prepared to make a personal sacrifice to achieve the goals you set before others. Wow. Such a worthy lesson seems applicable to me far beyond the College of Oxford. When we sacrifice 
to God. When we give to his people, the church, the church becomes all the more dear to us. We can give God our lip service, our desire to go deeper with God, but our willingness to sacrifice reveals whether our desire is genuine. Perhaps the painful truth is that while we we might accept that we have to sacrifice. We think we should be able to select the sacrifice and the degree that it will cost us. We want to stay in control of the equation, the control of the cost. We don't really want to become a living sacrifice to God, making the kind of costly gifts he requires. And God doesn't require the sacrifice because he's needy or demanding because he knows we need to sacrifice. Sacrifice sharpens our character, it refines our faith, it deepens our commitment, it gets our mind off of ourselves and on to serving others. And sure, it's not a pleasant, sacrifice, pleasant process. It comes some years for some of us to find joy in really giving to God our best to bring our first fruits to his place of worship, to support missions and ministry and undergird the worship of the creator of the cosmos who is worth it all. If you ever make it to that point of sweet surrender, I promise you, the intimacy with God that giving gives us is much more valuable than anything it might cost. And it's not just money. Stewardship's about our time and our talents. It's our priorities. Giving God the best of our everything. I can tell you this. God doesn't want your leftover anything. Not your turkey, your pizza, your burrito, or your zucchini. He doesn't want it. He wants the best of your time. Taking time to prepare a Sunday school lesson is a sacrifice and a gift to God. Supporting the church budget full of missions and ministries. Volunteer to reach out to someone as they come to our community from another culture. To teach them English as a second language. To treat them as a friend. Uncomfortable. Sacrificial. But so much like the God who is the God of all peoples. So before we show up with the season's third wave of overgrown zucchini, just remember, we worship a God who wants that very sweet, perfectly picked first watermelon that we have nursed and cared for from the beginning. So when you measure your offering, your calendar, your time, your energy, your talents, your efforts, what are you giving to God? Lame lambs, are you bringing your best. He knew the difference in Malachi's day, and he knows the difference now. Let's join David in declaring, I will never give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Later, Malachi tells them exactly how to give, how to give their best to God. Will a man rob God? Chapter 3, verse 8. Yeah, you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? Bring the whole tithe to the place of worship so that you may be, may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing 
until it overflows. Let us pray. Oh God, pardon our lame lambs and our second-rate fruit. Remind us that you are the best and you deserve, and yes, demand our best. That all of our gifts that we bring as an offering, a reflection of the great gift you gave us and the perfect lamb, the Son of God. God, I know people struggle with this. It's an honest spiritual struggle. Help us to overcome and find the joy of a generous hand. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.